Welcome listeners to our brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have an insanely special treat for you. We have an author as our guest today and New York Times bestseller and Bram Stoker Award winner and all the crazy amazing stuff. But also, aside from all that, a really cool person. So Jonathan Mayberry, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled. I don't know how I slept last night, but I, I managed. Somehow I managed. If you can, in, let's say, the short version of how did you get into writing? Like, why was writing something that you, at a certain point in school, you're like, you know what, I'm going to do this? Or you kind of fell into it? Or like, how did that come about? I'll give you a short answer, but it's an abbreviated version of a long answer. Okay, um, okay. Here's the thing. I always wanted to be a writer. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do my whole life to stop, tell stories. And what kind of writing I wanted to do changed constantly throughout those years. So by the time I hit high school, where I was really gearing up for it, it was shortly after Watergate. I wanted to be the next Woodward or Bernstein. I wound up getting a scholarship to Tuck University School of Journalism. I had every plan of writing for newspapers, and it's the one thing I haven't done is write for newspapers. Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, while I was in college, I took a course on magazine feature writing, a class on it, and I wound up doing that, writing and selling magazine features while I was in college. I continued doing that as a part-time gig. I had other daytime jobs. I was a bodyguard, I was a bouncer, I was all sorts of things I did over the years. I taught at Temple University, up the fence, and marched of history, while still writing on the side. You know, writing was always the, the thing that compelled me, and it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I decided I wanted to try fiction. That was never on my radar at all. I wrote a novel just basically to see if I would enjoy it and to use some of the stuff I'd researched. I had just finished writing a, a nonfiction book on supernatural folklore. Sat down and read a horror novel, wrote it, took me three and a half years. I got an agent quickly. She sold it quickly. It wound up winning the Bram Stoker Award for Best First Novel and it came out in 2006 and here I am in, in 2021 writing my 42nd novel. Wowzers. I wish I had yeah. fictions. Well, yeah. I guess sometimes though, you have to go through the other stuff. Well, to get to where you are now, I guess. Yep. But here's the real question. Is writing about zombies and horror really that different from writing for newspaper about politics? No. <laughs> Uh, I wish they were more different. At least in horror fiction has a better third act and the good guys win. Not entirely sure I'm seeing that in the paper right now. Well, okay, I have to ask one question because each time I've seen so much on your bio about you being a bodyguard and it, I'm so curious about it because as a writer, or at least for me, my mind is always in like a hundred different worlds and stories. But as a bodyguard, doesn't your mind kind of have to be quiet for like awareness or like... Yeah. When you're on the clock, you are paying attention to only that. You're not daydreaming. You're not doing anything but paying attention to the moment, to your training, to what the needs are for your principal. That's the person you're protecting. And depending on, on the, the type of job, what team is doing. But it is not a job for daydreamers. You have to be patient, observant, and quick to react. And it's a challenging job, but it, it you know, <laughs> the side effect of it is I now have enough material to last me for countless novels because of all the stuff I've had to go through on that job. Oh, so, so there you go. It's part of gathering experience to then be able to be a writer. I'm even going to be pitching a series of young adult novels about a kid who wants to grow up to be a bodyguard. So I'll be drawing on my own experiences for that series of books. Oh, excited. Oh, so does that mean that this is going to be a totally different series, world, universe, all of that for you? Yeah, I jump from genre to genre all the time. Funny, I wrote an article for Writer's Digest about that two years ago. I write thriller, horror, science fiction, fantasy, mystery. My next new thing, first book comes out in May of next year, May of 2022, is epic fantasy. But I'm also collaborating with a friend on military science fiction, and I do all whatever kind of writing sounds like it's going to be the most fun and would also sell. I pitch to my agent, and 
cheated gives me a, you've got to be out of your mind, or, oh my God, let me go pitch that right now. At, at this point, I have nine novels sold that I have not yet written, but I'll be writing over the next two and a half years. Oh, wow. Okay, time for our TVR to grow. When you're switching from genre to genre, which I think, because there's always the writers who, they pick their line and they stay in it and they're always forever there. And then the other ones who are like all over the place. Would you say that there's like a mind switch that's going on or is it just, you don't have to switch your mind. It's just, I'm writing the story. So that's where my brain is right now, sort of thing. You get into the mindset and the world of what you're writing. Like for example, yesterday I split my day between two things. In the morning, I was finishing a short story for an anthology tied to the Predator movie franchise. Oh. So I was right. And then in the afternoon, I was working on a, a post-apocalyptic novel dealing with a cult attack on literacy in a post-apocalyptic America. Now, they're two completely different types of stories. The difference between the two is just simply I wrote one in one mindset, went out, had lunch, came back, shifted gears and wrote the next one. Oh, you went out to lunch in between. Oh, okay. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I walk the dog. Sometimes I just say, okay, that's done. Let me start on the next thing. Usually when I finish one novel, I immediately, immediately start the first chapter of the next novel. No matter, even if it's a completely different genre. I, I just want that moment handled so that you know I'm already into the next book. Oh, yeah, wow. What about also writing between different age groups? Because you're in for adult, you've written for young adult. Would you say there's a mind switch there? That's also just, this is the story, so this is the way it's being told sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that helps there is you do a lot of reading in the genre that you're rewriting. So when I did my first young adult novel, I spent weeks while I was finishing a different book, I spent weeks reading young adult because my perception of what young adult fiction was as a man, well, now I'm in my 60s, but I was writing young adult when I was in my 50s. I started there. My perception of what the world was for teens and that literature world was are completely different from what the actual literature for teens is. And I didn't want to write something that spoke to an old fashioned mindset <laughs> or even worse a particular cliched interpretation of something. So you read about it, you read the commentary on it, you talk to people, maybe booksellers or parents, and you get a sense of the world so that when you decide to step into that world as a writer, it is not completely new territory. It's something that you know well enough to be able to honor and write authentically in. Right. With that said, though, would you say even going between genres and going between age groups, there's certain, I guess you could say, maybe either, uh, I don't know, core themes or a coreness to a world or a story that's universal to no matter what kind of story you're writing? There's some of that, although even within, say, middle grade, which is, you know, for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, it does have its own identity, its own vocabulary, and to a degree limitations. Like, when I write for adults, I can be quite potty-mouthed. It benefits from growing up in inner cities. But when I write for middle grade, not only am I not potty-mouthed, but I'm as much inside the head of kids as I can get, so I can, you know, see what they would think. You know, I remember being a kid. I just try to get into that mindset and I don't find it as difficult as it sounds because it's just a matter of doing your homework so that you understand what it is you're actually writing about, who you're writing for. Once you have that, you then can settle down and just have fun writing. Yeah, that's true. How much reading do you try to get in either in a week or is it just before particular projects that you're writing your nine novels and you're probably reading like and you're doing your short stories and everything else that you're doing? Well, part of it is I read fast. Part of it, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. It's my favorite way of reading these days because anytime I'm not at my desk, I'm puttering around doing something. And I want to make sure that I'm using that time to read. So I'll listen to five, six, seven audiobooks in a certain genre to kind of get myself into the flow for two reasons. One, I want to get into the flow. And two, I want to make sure that I'm not duplicating what somebody else is doing. So I read the books not only in the genre, but specifically in my zone within that genre. I don't want to be a copycat writer. I mean, that's one of the big 
sins of a writer is to try to write like someone else. So by reading a lot, when I'm doing the laundry, when I'm driving, when I'm walking my dog, I can listen to audiobooks all the time. So that's time that normally I wouldn't have to read, but I've made it my reading time, even as well as reading. And it's entertaining homework. It's the way I kind of look at it. Yeah, that's definitely the coolest thing about being a writer is that you can read for work or that you have to read for work. So it's like, it's win-win. Yeah, yeah, there's part of that that is not wonderful. Well, yes. Well, do you also, because especially that, you, you know, you got so many books or that you got all these stories, ideas, do you ever just sit and kind of Google titles just to see if anything's sounding the same as, as what you, you're planning on? Sure. Again, the last thing I want to do is be cliche. Right. So I will do a lot of research on the particular genre because a couple of reasons. If, if there's a book that really speaks to a certain audience, I want to read that and try to understand what it is about that book that spoke to the audience. I want to be able to capture some of that same lightning without in any way borrowing from the book. And that takes time and thought to get to that space. To me, this is not the difficult part of it. The difficult part is just finding enough hours in the day because even writing eight or nine hours a day, I want to write more. Wow. Well, do you prefer the actual writing part of it or the editing part before like the official editing part? As in after your first draft and then you got yeah. to like edit a, a thousand times, which is like your more preferred uh -huh. stage? Well, it's funny. These days, and you know, I'm 42 books in. I don't do as many revision passes. I don't need to as much because actually, this is a really important writing tip. I spent time also rereading my own published works. The reason I do this is because that's the version that has gone through all the editing, all the revisions, all the polish, and has been published. The more familiar I've become with my edited published voice, the easier it is for me to then get in that zone, jump right into that zone, which has reduced the number of revisions I've had to do greatly. I mean, really greatly. I think I may have lost the first part of your question. What was the first part of that question again? Oh, just asking if you prefer the initial yeah. draft stage or, yeah, the editing part of it. Yeah. So I love both, but for different reasons. You know, yeah. the initial draft, you're creating a world and you're meeting new characters and it's the fun and immediacy of that storytelling. But the revision is where the elegance comes in. Yeah. That's where you really get to play with all those elements of craft that we've read about in all the books and that I go looking for when I read a book by one of my favorite authors. I read it. For a you know, first as a reader, then I'll reread it as a writer, looking for the carpentry, seeing how it was done, learning from the best voices in our business so that I can write a story that is worth the time and money of a reader to read. You know, I don't want to just write a book that satisfies a contract. I want to write something that somebody's going to uh, to read. And go, man, that was that was great. I really love that. I want to honor the reader, and to do that, I have to really understand and appreciate all the elements of craft that go into telling as polished and superb a story as is within my abilities. Wow. So is there a balance between, let's say, craft books and just reading the great writers, or by reading the yeah. great writers, you'll pick it up sort of thing? It's funny, since I do teach writing, there's only one writing book that I actually make require reading in all my classes. Uh, writing the Breakout Novel Workbook by uh, Donald Moss. Um, oh, okay. Writing the Breakout Novel is good, but writing the Breakout Novel Workbook is such a powerful tool for writers to be able to understand who their characters are, why their characters are, in fact, the characters in the story and not other people. Like, what justifies their presence as protagonists, antagonists, etc. I, I want to see how the top writers handle figurative descriptive of language and how they change their pace in terms of even all the way down to paragraph and sentence structure in say a romance scene or an action scene or, a, or some other scene i want to understand by reading but you can't
can't really do that research reading unless you understand what the elements of style are. So I was teaching myself how to write a novel. I read a lot of books, Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg comes to mind. And they're really good books when you're starting out and really starting to learn the craft. They're a little less important, and I'm not saying not important, a little less important when you know the craft, when you've become, to some degree, an expert within your field. I don't read as many of those books these days, but I still do buy a new copy of writing the breakout novel workbook every time I start a novel and go through and answer some of the questions for myself and you know get a sense of justification for why I cast the book the way I did. Right. Well, I guess there's a certain point where you just have to go get experience or live. So it's kind of that same thing of just keep reading. And if you know what you're looking for, then you'll learn, like you'll know. Yeah. Experience is a great teacher. Reading is an experience because you are experiencing the book in whatever form you're reading it. The more information you have about your craft prior to reading, the more you will get out of that reading. So they feed each other well. It shouldn't be one or the other. It's definitely both elements make you a better writer. Right. Well, that's the one thing which I know spoilers. Some people are like, never, ever spoil, whatever. But sometimes if I know how something's ending, then I'll just watch for how they got there instead of just sitting in that suspense. And then I'm not really paying attention as much to craft sometimes. I do that sometimes too, though. I'm a big one for rewatching. If mm-hmm. I like something, you know, I'll watch it for entertainment and then I will definitely watch it again and study it. And sometimes you can't help studying while you're watching. Yeah. And sometimes that's fun. Noise the hell out of people if you're commenting on it while you're doing it <laughs> yeah. with friends. It's so true. <laughs> I've tried to avoid being that, you know. Yeah. And sometimes but, it just comes out though. <laughs> yeah. And the worst thing in the world is watch a mystery movie sitting next to a, a writer who writes a lot of mysteries. <laughs> Really, like, just put them in their own room somewhere. Keep them for the yeah. rest of us. I have been told that I need a mute button. Oh, no. They, like, tie you up before they sit down to watch something with you. <laughs> Yeah, they're probably correct on that. Actually, going back that you said that you'll reread some of your own published works yep. to get yourself into that brain, but there's no sense of whatever I'm going to be working on now is going to be better what I've done before. Just because one more novel makes me one more novel better of a writer, if that makes sense. Yeah, we all hope we're going to get better with each book, but right. sometimes I'll reread some of my old stuff and go, yeah, it wasn't half bad. And there are times you read a description of one of your older books and it's cringeworthy and you're like, oh my God, I'm glad people don't focus on that because I could change that when I would. Yeah, that's true. Because my brother and his friend was once like, no, once a book comes out, it is canon, and you're never allowed to change it. And I look at them like, you know, I'm not exactly this big writer person, but your first book, you could probably go back and write it like 100 times better because you have 100 times more experience. But I guess, is there a sense of like, just get it out there and move on, get it out there and move on? That's kind of what I've come to because I don't have the time to go back and rewrite everything. I know some writers have done that. And the only times I endorse a writer in doing that is when a book was unfairly edited with a heavy hand. That's a conversation I had with Stephen King a few years ago when he was talking about why he put out the expanded version of his book, The Stand. Because it was a long book, but it wasn't the story he wanted to tell. He just didn't have the clout within his own career yet to force the issue to put the book out that he really wanted out. So he went and did it. And it turned out it was, in fact, a better book. The expanded version was the better book. So he was right in that instance. But I also know other writers who want to do it, myself included. And that's the point at which some writer friend needs to give us a, an intervention and talk us out of it. Well, because also if you have so many more books to write, you're never going to get to them if you're going to sit on... That is my agent's number one point. Yeah. <laughs> As my agent tells me, nobody's going to pay you to rewrite something. They will pay you to write something new. So you actually live on your income. Maybe focus on that. Yeah, right. I have to turn a little bit because... Uh, your books that I'm most familiar with are The Rod and Ruin, especially we speak a lot about young adult. And I gotta say, the first time I saw it, 
Oh, I was actually at a conference that you were supposed to be at the conference, but I think you were sick. So, and I, I was like, okay, who's this Jonathan Mayberry? Like, I hadn't read any of your work yet. I'm like, you see your bio and all your stuff. I'm like, okay, this looks cool. And they had your books there because they had teamed up with a, a bookstore to have the books of the different writers. And I took one look in Rod and Ruin. I was just like, ew. I do not want to own this cover in my house. And it took me a few years before I finally bought it. And then once I read it, I was like, what took me? Well, I know it took me so long, the cover, but... On the one end, you have post-apocalyptic world and the zombies and all that kind of stuff. But to me, it's really not a book about zombies. I don't know. It's would you agree with that? or? I've been saying that for years. It's a zombie book for people who don't like zombies. The point in most horror, anyway, is that if you're focusing on the monster, you have lost the reader. The story is never really about the monster unless you intend it to be. Like, okay, something like Interview with the Vampire. It is about the monster. But most horror novels are not about the monster. They're about people who are encountering something beyond their experience that threatens to destroy their lives and it's not the monster per se that's the central focus it's how the characters are dealing with what they're going through it's the experience of characters that's why in, like in zombie stories very often once you've introduced the zombie which is a very easy monster to understand it rises from the dead and eats people that's pretty much yeah. all you need to know about zombies right? yeah, yeah. that's it so the story then shifts almost always and all, and all the, the better zombie stories it shifts then to the people caught up in the crisis because you're writing about people who no longer have the protection of infrastructure, which right. means they are completely on their own and having to be entirely themselves. If they're a captain of industry, that's not going to do them any good fighting a zombie. If they're a hairdresser, what good is that fighting a zombie? Who are they under all that? Who is the person they wake up as before they put on their face and go out and meet the dead? Zombie stories allow us to tell those kind of tales about real people dealing with real crisis that they are not prepared for. And the Rotten Room series was written to explore what it's like to grow up in a world where all the parents, essentially, have post-traumatic stress disorder from, from years of warfare and loss and heart. Kind of like the generation we have now, their parents are going to be like the parents in my Rotten Room book. They're going to feel like everything fell apart, what's worth fighting for, we're just pretty much waiting until the end. So the story is about kids who have to find hope in the middle of all that, because they were not part of a world that failed. Their world is this world. So they want to grow up and have a life worth living and that's really the core of the story how do you find a life worth living if even the people who you rely on every day don't believe it's possible wow. so yeah it's not about zombies so you could throw in world war one world war two or almost any war massive situation there yes. and it's and it wouldn't even change the story theoretically so much right exactly if it was wow. kids living in nazi germany or actually in, in france in the suburbs where they're not in paris where there's the heavy occupation but there's always the threat of the nazis right. yeah that's the same sort of story sure oh wow well i'm very glad that benny and tom i don't say like find each other again <laughs> they're just like oh you too oh, stop it <laughs> yay for you yay <laughs> no i don't know if you know but the book is in development for film without kind of entertainment people who did Blade Runner 2049, Book of Eli, the Expanse TV series, they're developing it for film right now with one of the Marvel screenwriters doing the script. That's amazing. But one second, development as in they actually, because I know, you know, they could option and something could be an option for like forever. Okay. Uh, option and development are the same thing. Okay. Production is what happens if they get to the point where they have a script and they have investors and everything's ready to go, then it goes into production. We are right now in development. They have hired a script writer. He's doing a great job, one of the Marvel script writers. Once that script is approved, the company goes and lines up investors. If they get investors interested enough, then they buy it for production. And this company has a very good track record for going from 
development to production. This boutique film company, even though they've done big films, they tend to only do the films they think they can make movies out of. Oh, amazing. And it's a great group. I like them all. We've been working together really closely on Rotten Ruin. So they did let you have, was it stipulated from the outside or they opened up the option for you to have a lot of input on the script? Not input directly on the script. Like I can't tell the scriptwriter what to write and how right. to write it. Okay. Even though I actually know the scriptwriter, we've known each other for a while. Once the thing is actually done, I'll actually have more creative control. I'm, I'm an executive producer on it. Oh, um, there you go. Both me before they hired the scriptwriter. So they had those conversations with me first to know which set pieces within the book that I think would make the strongest movie. Because you can't put the entire you know 480 page book into a 90 minute movie. That's not going to happen. Right. So they wanted my input, and they took some of my ideas, and they didn't take other ideas, and that's perfectly fine. That's their job to do the movie they think that's the best to make. And I'm not one of those prima donnas who gets all upset if they don't follow everything you know exactly as written. I would be kind of disappointed if they did, because it's a different medium, as movies are not told the same way as books. Yes. You have to change it in order to make the visuals come alive. Similar to comic books. I write for comics, uh, comic companies. I'm about to do a comic book adaptation of Rotten Ruin. And even I'm going to make changes for the comic because a comic is not a novel. You can't have as much interior dialogue. You can't have as much backstory. You've got to allow the story to unfold in a different way. I get it. And I'm okay with it. That's funny because you had preempted the question because I was going to ask, like, how do you feel about adaptations? But that's so true. So the changes that you're making are not necessarily, oh, I wish I would have gone this way, not that way. It's just... Because there's a visual medium now, as in like for the comic book, I don't have to write certain things because it's there. Or this doesn't play out in a visual medium. I have to change this scene. Does right. It... And like, yeah, for okay. example, if there's a scene with eight characters talking, right. that's a pretty crowded comic book panel. Yes. So I can shoot that down to three characters, give one character maybe lines from two or three other characters. I still get the story across without having to crowd the scene and crowd out the art. Right. Oh, so we're going to lose some people. Oh, well. The zombies are going to eat them in between the novel and the comic book. Yeah, that happens. But at the same time, if people ever want to see the writer's full vision, go buy the book. It's right there. There's seven books in that series. Go knock yourself out. Right. Oh, yeah. So back to the, the Rotten Room cover because it creeped me out so much. I had bought Broken Lens first because that cover is just a kid with a hockey stick keeping out like the zombies. I was like, oh, I can handle this cover. But then I saw somewhere else a listing. And then you said also that Broken Lens is actually book number six. Sex. Right. Well, because this was a lot in YA that a lot of people, they were either writing their three or four books, and then the fourth book or the fifth book was a bunch of short stories, which you kind of did for Autumn Room with bits and pieces. So that, for a long time, was finishing off the series. But then it seemed like after that, you kind of decided, or did you always have a sense to keep going with the series? Or, because it seems like I, that's I, how it would have cut anyway, you know? I have more ideas for the Rotten Ruin than I will live long enough to write. And I love the characters, and I love the world, and there's so much potential built into it. For those who are zombie fans, it was semi-officially, well, I guess officially, since it was greater, of Night of the Living Dead. Got George Romero wrote Night of the Living Dead, wrote and directed it. He loved those books, and he said, you know, as far as he's concerned, they are the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Oh, wow. Once he told me that, that it gave me even more incentive to keep writing more stories, and he even had me write a short story that took one of the characters from a prequel novel and brought him to the house of Night of the Living Dead, so that it is officially, that happens. So not only is Rotten Ruin a sequel, a series of adult novels I did are the official origin story for Night of the Living Dead. Wow. Not the Joe Ledger ones, or yes, the Joe Ledger ones. 
Well, it's a spinoff. There's a series called Dead of Night. Joe Lynn actually shows up in the third book in that series. But in the second book, a character from his team, Sam Amore, who was a sniper, turns out he's the older brother of Benny and Tom Amore, who are the main characters of Rotten Ruin. Just they think he's dead by the time Rotten Ruin starts. Turns out he's not so much dead, he's just living elsewhere, thinking they're dead. They all meet again in Broken Lands. But what happened is at the end of the one book where that character is killed off, he's killed off kind of off screen. He's believed dead. Romero beat me up over that. He said, I love that character. Can't kill him off. I read a short story where that character makes it to the house of my living dead. I'm like, are you freaking serious? <laughs> Yeah, I am. So I did. And that became part of an anthology he and I co-edited of stories set in the world of Night of the Living Dead. The anthology was called Nights, plural, Nights of the Living Dead. Sadly, it was the last project George completed before he passed. Wow. That's pretty crazy, yeah. though. George became a really good friend of mine, too. We shared the same worldviews, the same politics, the same sense of humor. Yeah. So a lot of fun working with him on that project. And what an honor, too, because, I mean, let's face it, how many people do you know actually created an entire trope, an entire genre of fiction? Prior to Night of the Living Dead, all zombie movies were really tied, to, badly tied, to Haitian folklore. They were really awful versions of white viewpoints of what the zombie culture was. When George Romero did Night of the Living Dead, he wasn't trying to do zombies. That name was actually hung on the genre later on by filmmakers who called it the zombie genre. So he created a genre, he created the entire zombie genre as we know it. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's done that. I don't think there's anyone alive who's done that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, just going back for a sec, because you have the Rod and Ruin and the Joe Ledger and even now, you know, all these other stories. Do you just remember all different elements of your universe and your characters or do you have to keep track of them somehow? Uh, it depends on which universe. If I'm writing a long series, I have to keep some notes. Like in a short series, I just reread the last couple of books before I start working on the new one. But with some Joe Ledger series where there's 12 books and one, two, three, four four or five short story collections, I can't remember them all. So <laughs> what I do is actually what happened there is a couple of fans reached out to me and asked if I could give them permission to write a Joe Ledger companion nonfiction book. And I said yes, partly because I need that book <laughs> for research. So a little bit of self-interest as well as letting some fans have some fun. And I consult that book every time I write a new Joe Ledger novel. Wait, wait a second. It's considered a nonfiction companion to a fictional series? Yes, it has all the plot lines, it has profiles of the characters, it has stuff about the science, the weapons, and so on. Chronologies, interviews, but it's kind of tongue-in-cheek written as if this is the real world. Ah, it's like a book's version of a show bible, like for a TV series almost. Yes, it is, very much so, and the fans got the idea from having read a book similar to that set in the Sookie Stackhouse slash True Blood world. Oh. Because <laughs> they love those books, and they asked me if they could do one for me, and I'm like, yeah, please. Yay for fans. Quickly, got another book to write. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. And then one more thing also, because you're saying that, oh, I have more ideas for the store or, you know, different things. So between the first book and the second book, the location a little bit changes because, you know, they leave the city, they go on the road. Yep. The zombies change a little bit because they get faster, but do you have to keep switching up the zombies? Is there only so much that you could do to switch up zombies? Or like, what happens uh, at a certain point to expand those elements of the universe? As Romero created them, they're kind of a limited monster in that there's only certain things they do. Yeah. But there are a lot of writers who have taken liberties with that. If you look at guys like Isaac Marion with Warm Bodies, he had the zombies were created by an infection, but love becomes an infection that cures them. Right. In um, The Girl with All the Gifts by Mike Terry, the zombies are created by spores from outer space, and they have different pack behavior. So you can change things a lot. But since I had established one kind of zombie in the book, and I had done a ton of science research, 
I do lots of research. I talk to molecular biologists and epidemiologists about natural mutations and about forced mutations that can happen in labs. So based on that research, I was able to build into the storyline the potential that zombies can change. It's just the zombies around the small town where the characters are living, there's no reason for those zombies to change because they would not have had exposure to other types of zombies. It's not like they're world travelers. It's only when we get out into the world and see the different types of zombies out there that we find out that the interaction with different species, different versions of the mutation, have created different forms of zombies, and that becomes a greater threat because now what you think you know about how to stop them may not apply. Right. Is the one limit, well, I don't know if it's like a limit, but is the one sort of limit for zombies just intelligence? Because the higher the intelligence level, I don't know, they just become cannibals? That's a little extreme. Zombies are scariest in numbers. Okay. One slow-moving zombie is not that scary if you understand the basics of what to do. That's why if you watch shows like Walking Dead, originally you have one character being terrified of a single zombie and not knowing what to do and so on. And then later, by like the fifth or sixth season, the group of heroes is killing like 80, 90 zombies in a, in a single fight. So that's why the villains, the real villains of the stories are not the zombies. They're almost always human beings because zombies are not by themselves evil. They're without conscious thought. Right. They have no malice any more than a play where a tornado has deliberate malice. So with that, you build in people who see this catastrophic situation that's happened, the world ending, but also laws ending. And they think, well, this is my time to do whatever I want. And we have that kind of personality. So you marry that opportunistic meanness, that corruption or evil against the heroism of the characters who are trying to fight it. You pretty much got Shakespeare right there in terms <laughs> of plot. You know, it's good guys and bad guys. Right. And then writing two different series within the same universe is it just like, well, as long as there are two different parts of the world, I could kind of play around with it? Or if I set it up in this book, I got to make sure I follow through with it on, in that book. Yeah, you want consistency within your own work. At the same time, if you're writing two different series, in the, the Dead of Night series, which is actually written for adults, not teens, in that series, it's just starting. So the plague is in its purest form. There are no mutations yet because there hasn't been time for this thing to mutate. But as we get into the third and fourth books in the series, which jump forward in time, we're seeing uh, mutated zombies. We're seeing more variety because that's what happens over time in the natural world. It would be weird for something not to mutate. Right. A lot of mutations could be a necessary part of expanding that world because it's not going to be the same everywhere. It can't be. Science doesn't work that way. And there was also, I think, like the zombie hog or something like that. Some of those were originally test animals that got out, and some of those test animals infected other animals. By Broken Lands, we even run into a zombie silverback gorilla. Oh, wow. It's a bit of a challenge to deal with because, you know, silverback gorilla by itself is tough enough. But when it's harder to kill and it's a zombie, it's like, oh my. There's in Lost Roads, the last book in the series so far, two of the characters are chased by a pack of zombie zebras, which are normally pretty cute animals unless they turn into carnivorous monsters. So that's fun taking an expected thing and turning it around and changing its nature. That allows you to have a little weird fun. Right. That's the audience. Well, because I guess also, how many times are they just going to be chased by a pack of zombies? Because then it's the outer elements are still the same thing in every story then. If you don't do something to up the ante, not just human-wise, because, you know, there's so many possibilities with that. But like you said, because zombies are so limited, you got to figure out how crazy you could go with that, I guess. That's our job as writers to be inventive, to take something and say, okay, well, what's the next twist to it? A lazy writer doesn't bother. A writer who really wants to honor the reader who's reading their work always bothers to do that, always takes that extra step. And it's also fun, too, because it keeps it from being boring for you. You don't want to just sit down and write the same old thing every day. Right. You know, two of my recent novels deal with vampires, Glimpse and Ink. Neither vampire sucks blood. Neither is scared off by a cross or killed by a stake through the heart or any of that. 
They feed not on blood, but on different essences. In, in Glimpse, it's a vampire that feeds on hope. And in Ink, it's a vampire that feeds on memories. Well, that's, that's me taking a standard model of a monster and just going completely a different place with it. I, I went somewhere else with it. As a result, not only did it keep it fresh for me and keep it fresh for the readers, but the characters within the story. Like, if you and I were suddenly in a, a vampire story, we would think we know we would know how to deal with it. We'd get cross and garlic and some steaks and, you know, all that. But if it turns out that those aren't the rules that actually work, our preconception of how to fight that thing becomes a vulnerability because we believe so much that we have an answer that we're not prepared for when the answer doesn't work. That's good dramatic tension in fiction. Yeah, that's basically life. <laughs> Just because you think you know how the real world is wired doesn't necessarily mean that it's wired that way. And just because you don't like that it's not that way doesn't mean it's not going to continue being that way. The world doesn't need our approval to be however it's going to be. We need to be able to adjust to it so we can live within that world. Right. That kind of comes back to the beginning, that it's all about the people, really, about and having to adjust it. Because the world is the world. You can't do anything, you know, about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like stories that turn a trope on its head because I've read so much that I the tendency to get jaded if storyteller. Yeah. Not only do you read a lot, but you also know how the story is likely to go because you can kind of see this following that equals that. But if you get a writer who's really inventive and they turn things around, it's like, oh wow, that's I did not see that coming, and now I don't know how it's going to end. I'm in. I'm sold. Yes. That's so true. Yeah. I just got to ask quickly, growing up, all the genres that you're writing in now, are these the kind of genres that you wrote growing up or just as you've gotten older and you've just expanded your interests? I've always read across genre lines. In fact, I read as many mysteries and historical thrillers and so on as I read horror and science fiction. You know, I'm all over the place. There's almost no genre I won't give a try. If somebody tells me, hey, this is a good book, you might enjoy it. I'll give it a swing. It informs the, what I write, too. Even though I've, I'm in the horror world, I've won five Bram Stoker Awards, so I'm kind of a horror guy. Yeah. But even with that, I don't feel like I'm owned by any one genre. I feel like I'm a writer and a reader, and that's as far as I want to define those things. I read and I write. I'll write what I want to write, and I'll read what I want to read, and generally, that will change day to day, week to week. When I was a kid, I was reading all sorts of stuff. I was In fifth grade, I was reading Ed McBain mysteries, which are definitely not written for kids. I was reading The Godfather and Rosemary's Baby and oh. that sort of stuff. But I was also reading The Hardy Boys. Right. And I was reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and Ray Bradbury. Right. What about, well, romances? Have you ever read heavy romance? Yep, I've read romances. I've even spoken at Romance Writers Association meetings. Uh, what? <laughs> I figure almost every novel has a romance in it. Why wouldn't I, as a writer, want to read something written by a skilled romance writer to see if there are elements of craft that I can borrow or learn from so that I can make the romance within my own stories, even if it's a horror story, more believable? I read enough teen romances when I was writing Rotten Ruin. Right, because good writing or good technique or good something is worth learning from. It is, yeah. unless you're a snob, and you <laughs> have to be a snob when it comes to the writing world. Well, just to quickly, is that also part of that you said that you're writing epic fantasy? Is that kind of just for yourself of like, hey, let's try something new now? No, no, actually, oh. I started off the conversation. I got a phone call from my editor at McMillan, the guy I write my Joe Ledger thrillers for, and he said they just got out of a meeting and they were saying that they wanted to get a bigger footprint in the epic fantasy space. Had I ever thought about it? I said, sure, I've thought about it. They said, can you send me a pitch? 45 minutes later, I sent him a pitch. An hour after that, we had a deal for, wow. for novels in a series. That's awesome. That's going to be, well, for me as a reader, it's going to be cool to see, like, to be able to, okay, this is the, the zombie version and this is the fantasy version. Like, what has he done with it? You know, like, to observe it kind of. 
That's exciting. Yeah, I've also written a standalone novel about the first families moving to Mars, all from the point of view of a teenager who's leaving his first girlfriend behind. Oh. Mars One, it's actually about to be optioned again. I've written a story set in The Wizard of Oz. I've, I've written so many different kinds of things, westerns and historical fiction. And there's really nothing that I wouldn't give a try to if I thought it would be fun to do. Do you have a lot of novels, compared to the many that you have done, do you have any amount that's been written and haven't gone published or yet? No. Well, Everything I've written, I've sold. Amazing. That's awesome. Uh, part of it is I, I sold my first novel and it won awards. Right. So that kind of helped. And plus I have the world's most amazing literary agent, Sarah Crow at Pippin Properties. She's incredible. We were on a, a call with a new editor that we'll be working with. We were on a Zoom call the other day and we both admitted that we could not easily put a number to how many projects we've sold together. Wow. I figure it's since 2006. I've written 42 novels. I've got nine sold that I haven't written yet. I've done 21 runs of comics into graphic novels. I've edited 22 anthologies. I edit Weird Tales magazine. I have a board game out. I had a TV show. All of this stuff is different projects we worked on. And whether it's a game or a new novel or something else, my agent, if she doesn't know it, and it's, we're kind of similar in this, if she doesn't know how to sell it, she'll learn. She goes out and learns. Just like if I need to write a new genre, I go out and learn that genre. We're very much like that. We're both, I'm a writer, she's an agent, but we're also both professional students. Right. Yeah, that's a good, right end on, on the professional students one. That's great. That's, um, that's amazing. Very good. Well, I hope you keep losing track of that number. That would be fantastic. It is a little weird, though. I mean, sometimes I'll be asked to make a list of my books, and, or sometimes I'll just be just sitting there, you know, watching TV, and for idle curiosity, we'll see if I can make a complete list of the books I've written. Almost always, I forget one or two. It's not because I don't like them. It's just that's a lot of product in, in um, how many years? Been, you know, six, uh, 15 years? Yeah. Are you spending eight to 10 hours a day, or are you spending like 14 to 20 hours a day on writing? The reading is, is also, but like on writing itself, or is it just because you're just that fast? With it. I'm fast. I write about, um, about nine hours a day, on average. Now, that work time also includes editing, deal making, business calls, pitching the studios for TV stuff. Sometimes those days are longer, but overall, it's my day job and I have to put in whatever time is necessary for my business to do well. Yes. Well, and also whatever conferences or whatever. Or like you're doing a podcast today also. So, well. Yeah, right before this, I visited a school in North Carolina and talked to our creative writing group. Oh, great. See, well, I know everyone's Zoomed out, but that's probably the one good thing still about the Zoom and the video calls is that it reminded us that living in this century, we could connect to people who don't live next door to us. Yeah, and I'm one of those people that is not Zoomed out. I think Zoom is an incredible utility, and I use it a lot. I even teach my classes now on Zoom. I think it's one of the best things that happened, and it's such great timing that it was here for us when COVID hit. Right, yes. Well, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but like a few people who, who were very frustrated. Okay, I mean, you can't do what was done, but at the same time, it's like, is there any other century you'd prefer to be in? Like, this is the one century that you could Zoom someone. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like the technology. I like the, the speed with which this century moves. You know, I'm in my 60s. I'm 63, but I'm very much right in the middle of what's happening with technology because I see how that affects what I do. It affects my business. Yeah. And either you move with the times or you get left behind. And I'm having too much fun to want to get left behind. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Excellent point. Very, very good. Well, we always wrap up with a fill-in-the-blank question of using 
any of these of I love it when writers or illustrators or agents or editors or stories or series or books or whatever do X and I really don't like it when they do X. Any one of those. How would you fill in the blank for that? I can actually give you two that are semi-related. Okay. One, I hate when writers review books and slam other writers. Once you start writing, you should stop reviewing. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that. I used to do reviews too because it's hard enough after being a writer. We don't need each other kicking us when we're down or just throwing punches. We don't need that. You know, right. the ad for everyone if it's not good for sales and it's unkind and I'm not a big fan of unkind. The flip side of that is a bit of advice that I'll share that I was given. I got to know Ray Bradbury when I was a kid and was mentored a bit by him. And, you know, what an amazing human being he was. And one of the things he told me, first, he gave me his 10 commandments for how to be a great writer. Okay. Don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass. <laughs> Don't be a jackass. So on. And that's not only great advice for a writer, it's great advice for living. Yes. He told me that the thing that made him the happiest as a writer was when he's able to help other writers, to be kind to them, to be supportive, even if there's no gain in it for us at all, even if there's no paycheck, no pat on the back, nothing. Help another writer out, and you've done a good day's work. So I started the Writer's Coffee House to do exactly that. We have groups meeting all over the country, no fees, no registration, just writers helping writers, because that's a really good way to get along. So that's the thing I think more writers should do, and I like it when they do it. And slamming other writers, putting other writers down is the thing I hate, and I hate when writers do it. I got nothing to say on that. That's Yes, well... Well, John, thank you. Thank you so, so much for your time. Well, I guess thanks to Ray Bradbury for pushing you to yeah. give to other writers. Yeah. Ray was a man. He was everything, every bit as good as everything you've ever heard about him. Wow. That's pretty and awesome. And yet, still met his deadlines. So, <laughs> good guy. Spend a little time doing some good for people and still get your deadlines done. It isn't one or the other. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for coming on today. It's been so much fun speaking with you. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. This was a bonus episode of All My Work Podcasts featuring author Jonathan Mayberry. To find out more about Jonathan and all his work, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about All My Work Podcasts and all the great stuff we're up to, check us out on Instagram at All My Work Podcasts or at el10about.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.